recording this with no shirt on. I am we- I am wearing a shirt. But nothing else. <laughs> well, you'll ne- you'll never know. You can't say. Yeah, once again, you're um, paying an homage to me by wearing a shirt, which I wore first. I mean, we could say I was paying a homage to the band that it is rather than you, but sure. No, I was paying a ba- homage to Val right. from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, by wearing their yep. shirt, just as I was paying an homage by listening to them. And then you paid an homage to me by glamming on to my musical tastes and attire. <sighs> To be fair to you, I mean, I, I don't think this is suitable for broadcast, but to be fair to you, I believe you asked me before buying that shirt. Oh, yeah. I did. And in fact, I think um, verbatim, what you said is, would it be gay if I bought one too? And I said, only if you wear it on our date. I can't remember that. I must have repressed it. Uh, and I must have thought it was so witty that I remembered it, which is kind of kind of pathetic. Yeah, that's worrying. Okay, so we're doing an episode. We're doing an episode because we said we're going to do a cycle. We're going to have some regularity. We'll do it every two weeks. We actually haven't had two weeks, but we're doing an episode anyway because James can't do Monday, which would be the two-week point. So we've rescheduled to today, Friday, 22nd of January, 2021. Now, the last episode was almost two weeks ago. We got, kind of got lucky in the sense that, like, mad shit was kicking off right before we recorded. And, like, a good you know amount of time. So you had the 6th of January, we had a few days to digest that, then we did an episode. This time, I mean, what's happened? The inauguration, which was like a non-event. I'm not sure how technically I mean that phrase. I'm not sure how much I want to go into claiming it wasn't an event in a philosophical sense, but... Is Joe Biden president? I don't even know. I mean, it's a wild question. I mean, is, is history still happening? I'm worried that I'm like you now, that I, without Trump, I'm, I have nothing, I have nothing to hold on to. I mean, look, this is, this I think is, is what we have to address in this episode, because like, there is no obvious theme this week. I think nullity, void, nihil, these are mm. the things we need to address, because that is, that is what we're looking at now, is, is a yawning chasm where Trump used to be. And I don't just mean politically, I mean, in, in, in ton, terms of a whole network of meaning. And I mean, as I was doing with Trump, look, I anticipated this, right? I should probably say we anticipated this. I should give you the credit, James. I, you... I appreciate that. It might be a lie, but I appreciate it. I appreciate the co-authorship. <laughs> well, this is the nature of things. I mean, you know, ultimately there's only one author, but... <laughs> We'll leave that for another episode. I'm not sure we will. I think we might get on this one. We'll <laughs> yeah, see. okay. That, that's true. That might actually... I think we might actually be scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point. But, yeah, we predicted it, right? We predicted that there would be disarray, mass disarray, at a cognitive level, post-Trump. And I, I think we're only just seeing this dawning, right? Because obviously, you know... If you, if you go on social media, as I now do continually, like I, I'm back on my bullshit to the most extreme possible degree, what you see really is a lot of people jubilating, if that is indeed a verb, about the inauguration of Joe Biden. And that jubilation is filling their hole. So they're, they're Trump hole. So that they are no longer 
gnashing their teeth, but they are yes queening about Joe and Kamala and the Obamas and George W. Bush now, who apparently is like a resistance hero still, like the good Republican somehow. The good Republican. So, some fucking how. The one we can trust. Absolutely extraordinary. The one who came to the inauguration. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, a lot of Republicans came to the inauguration, just not DJT. So, yeah, that jubilation is, is filling a bit of a void. I mean, something that really interested me, which I saw on Twitter, was, and from the right, you know, people tweeting about TIFA, as they now call them. What's that? Well, so that, that's the right wing would like to like to talk about and Antifa, as they, right. they um, pronounce Antifa, and and t- and just re- you know abbreviating just to Tifa, and talking about Tifa kicking off in Portland, Oregon, and of course I take it it's not strictly speaking Tifa at all, but you know because Antifa is not an organisation, like there's something that the the right keep disagreeing about like they keep mocking joe biden for saying antifa is not an organization uh, in the presidential debates but it isn't like it's not an organization it's just it, it's it's a, a strategy or a tactic or a badge you call yourselves but basically like black block guys far left-wing activists so presumably we're talking portland presumably i'm thinking insurrectionist anarchists but you know could be marxists in there etc clad in black, going after an ICE facility. So they went, went a rampage. There were rampages by such people in both Portland and Seattle last night um, in reaction to the inauguration of Joe Biden. And, you know, there was it kicked off in front of an ICE facility in, in Portland where like ICE agents were shooting protesters with plastic bullets. And this, this caused complete consternation <laughs> by by the rightoids who were looking at this going, oh, what's going on? I thought Antifa were X, Y, or Z. Uh, not understanding the politics of the far left at all, which is to say that, you know, people have been putting a lot of effort into opposing Trump, but actually they are genuinely opposed to the US state at large, are not fans of the Dems. Uh, and this confuses people on the right with good reason, because actually, for the entirety of the Trump presidency, far-left activism has accidentally, effectively, not intentionally, but kind of accidentally, been, uh, uh, you know, the Praetorian Guard of the Democrats. But now this is, has radically changed. Now suddenly um, the far-left are going after capital. This is always what the far-left said they would do, right? In the sense that, oh, we just need to get rid of this fascist threat, then, we're gonna, then we'll revert to anti-capitalism as normal. Um, mind-bogglingly naive on their part, because it strikes me immediately what's going on there is that the far left are positioning themselves as the new domestic terrorist threat. Like in this period of like unprecedented discourse at a national level around the alleged threat of domestic terrorism. And at that moment, Trump supporters completely evaporate. Like, the, I mean, the Trump supporters are the ones absolutely facing the void here, like just nakedly, more than, you know, any anyone else, more than us, more than the libs, more than the, you know, 
other far leftists. The, the right have had this massive fucking letdown. The, the ones who supported Trump, days, which I think is the main body of opinion on both the far right and, and probably into the center right in terms of normal people. Like obviously the politicians were, were more cagey about Trump, but ordinary Republican voters generally supported him. And these guys were, it's, I mean, a huge number of Americans really, at the end of the day, were hugely invested in Trump one way or the other. And the, the guy just, just, you know, let, let out of farce and fell out of the White House. Like the, just absolute, you know, with a whimper is too kind. Mm. With like, like a diarrhea explosion <laughs> falling out of the door. I think like, and it's, I was thinking about this the other day, then we need to make a distinction between the different kinds of Trump supporter, because now since the capital events, people have been obsessing over, I suppose, what you'd call the more hardline Trump supporters, which you might say are more associated with the QAnon stuff. But of course, there's millions and millions of Trump supporters, more mainstream Republican Trump supporters who perhaps have nothing to do with QAnon. I have no idea the extent to which, you know, how, I, know I know QAnon is popular, but I don't know what the numbers are. But I mean, you, I see you've been having this argument on Twitter, Mark, but there's an assumption going now on the left or in, in, in indeed in liberalism on the liberal side too, um, that the QAnon sort of phenomenon won't go away. Whereas your take seems to be that it absolutely will. It will just fizzle because as you say, what they're now confronting, perhaps more so than any of the Trump supporters is a total void in terms of the kind of myth-making that they've been setting up for the last two or three years. Yeah. And I, I wonder what that then implies, because I, I actually don't know whether it will fizzle out or not. I mean, because of course there's the possibility as with all myth-making that you can continue to work with the myth and work it to your historical situation. But also at the same time, given the centrality of Trump to that myth, once he's gone, one wonders how it can actually have like hold, hold, hold itself up under its own weight because it's becoming increasingly complicated and, and, and sort of bizarre. Um, and then what that then means for the more mainstream Trump supporters, I don't know. Do, do they just see it? I mean, perhaps those, I mean, how many Republicans who support Trump think that, for example, the election was legitimate? That is to say that the, if the result was fair. And then how many of them think that it wasn't fair, but for more mainstream political reasons that aren't related to QAnon? I mean, I think it's, it's a huge mistake, I think, on, on everyone's behalf to sort of conflate all, what, 73 million Trump supporters and as the as part of the same phenomenon. But what will happen and what has happened after the Capitol event on the 6th is that now, and this of course works for the, the current myth-making, is that all Trump supporters are equivalent to those who stormed, or I know you don't like that verb, but in inverted commas, stormed the Capitol. That is, they say they are all QAnon fantasists. When of course that's clearly not the case. Yeah, but there's a lot going on here, hmm. as, you've, as you've rightly said. I think what you, said, what you started out by saying is correct, namely that we need to differentiate here. On the other hand, it is difficult to differentiate. I also, mm. I think there's clearly some fluidity between these categories. Yeah, that's true. Particularly because, I mean, because Q never revealed himself, right? There's no absolutely agreed upon Q canon. So there's people who can be into bits of Q. So you can have like kind of one foot in Q. It's also the case that like by the end of the Trump presidency, 
there were bits of kind of mainstream Trumpism that were fairly wacky without being Q-pilled. Mm. You know, but beliefs around the election and, and, and what was going to happen, this kind of unleash the cry rhetoric and so on. So look, I take it that QAnon as a movement was a massive cope dealing with how little Trump was delivering of what was originally expected of him. So basically you had Trump in office suppo supposed to drain the swamp. I think in particular this is the thing. So Trump is supposed to deal with the entrenched corrupt US political elite and he didn't do it. He never did. Did, did some vague gestures in that direction. And the, the whole Q mythos was, uh, look, he is dealing with it, you just can't see it. That's literally, again and again, one form or another, it's always been what they've said. It's happening, you just can't see it yet. And by the end, I mean, they kept pushing the deadline by which he was going to do this claim, you know, in Q circles that people had been eliminated and replaced with clones. So ever more kind of Baroque and implausible kind of ways of saying, oh, look, it's, it's all happening. You just can't see it. I mean, increasingly not making any sense because there's just no, if Trump has the power to do all this stuff, why wouldn't he reveal it? Uh, and at that point, there's, a, there's some really interesting kind of crossover with, with Christianity in particular. Of course, QAnon largely Christian phenomenon, um, but a kind of secularized Christian phenomenon. I mean, it's largely Christian phenomenon in the sense that most people who are believers are also Christians. But in some ways, the kind of forms of beliefs about, you know, the kind of mysterious working of God were, were directly imported into in the, the Q mythos. God is kind of working behind the scenes. So it wasn't God, it was Trump, right? Kind of very sacrilegious. I mean, and ultimately, I mean, that's that needs to be said about QAnon, that it is, it's a, a sacrilegious blasphemous, possibly even a heretical uh, movement. And that, that's a serious problem. Right down the line with a lot of Trumpists, which is a lot of, like, I think pretty clear, absolute majority of Trumpists are Christians, often very volubly so. And I think the, the idea that Trump support is an expression of Christianity is outrageous. It's always been outrageous. But look, the key thing was a big cope. It, we've, we've now got the point, and I think we're going to see, you know, inevitably there'll be a kind of splintering here where there'll be a presumably quite tiny hardcore of Q people who will continue to believe that things are happening behind the scene. I mean, I think I shared with you, someone had posted, there was an anonymous posting saying, look, when the inauguration happens, actually, there'll be, there will have been a face-off operation with Trump and Biden, the that the person who appears to be Biden will actually be Donald Trump wearing Biden's face. And presumably having lost a huge amount of weight. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it. That had an anchor point in the fact that Trump had disappeared from the public view after he got cancelled by Twitter. So there was this, this odd period um, where like, yeah, okay, it's like Trump is missing. This is the period in which he's becoming Biden or something. Um, well, you know, that, that, so that, that, there'll be, there'll be, you know, an absolute hardcore who just continue to believe it's happening regardless of what evidence, right? Because, and, and ultimately they've already embarked upon that. But I think actually the, the, the majority are just disillusioned at this point, have just, have just hit a wall, uh, much like more mainstream Trump supporters have. The, the, mm. the point at which they could delay has run out. And that is a general characteristic of Trump supporters. You know, tr Trumpists in general, even the majority of them who I take it are not Q believers, still basically had the form of belief that Q believers do in the sense that they delusionally believed that Trump was going to do stuff that he'd announced back in 2016. 
They still believed in the agenda that Trump had set forward before he became president, despite the fact he had four years and hadn't done it even to the quasi Q point of believing he had done it. I mean, the most ridiculous example of this that comes to mind is that Trump supporters who in other ways seem quite rational, pointing to a fact, very misleading fact, that um, immigration declined greatly under Trump, despite the fact this was basically entirely due to coronavirus. So trying to claim that, oh, Trump had acted on immigration because no one was coming to the US anymore, when in fact it was just because the borders were closed because of COVID, not because of anything Trump had really, had really chosen to do I think it's the case on both sides. That is, those who support Trump, you know, all, all his many tribes of supporters, as well as those who opposed him. I think what we're now dealing with, I, I, maybe I'm overreaching here, but sort of differing modalities of disappointment. I mean, I don't know if you sense this, Mark, but you know, there was all this talk before the inauguration that there was going to be sort of, you know, an armed uprising or violent, violent protests on behalf of Trump supporters. And of course, which didn't materialise. And I could sense a slight sense of disappointment on behalf of the mainstream liberal media that this hadn't occurred because, it had, of course, it hadn't actually confirmed their darkest suspicions and paranoias, which is to say that half the country is actually ready to rise up. And, of course, I don't actually deny that there probably is a small section of Trump supporters that did want to do it. And I think what we talked about last week, which is to say they have no obvious leader, is probably the main thing stopping them. Yeah, well, they wanted to do it. Yeah, I mean, and, and but what needs to be said here, I think, is that the events the 6th of January were a catastrophe for the right in the US. Yeah. All across the board. So from centre to far right, what happened on the 6th of January was so terrible because of the way it played out. So firstly, you have you have this invasion. You know, I don't like the word storm because it implies that it was more difficult for them to do than it was. A large number of, of protesters, apparently illegally, uh, and I think it was apparent to many of them, but it, it, it seems to be the case now, illegally going into Congress. And this was something that gave the a pretext for a whole bunch of people, for social media companies, for the Democrats in Congress, to go after the hardcore of Trump supporters. So the federal agencies to go out and arrest everyone who was there in, in, in the Capitol, uh, they suddenly had a reason to arrest a whole bunch of people. Given, I mean, we don't really know what the wash up this is gonna be yet, but given the way that federal statutes around like the RICO Act and conspiracies work, like they could be going after very large numbers of people actually over very little, like the way you, you prove a conspiracy exists is, is pretty minimal evidence at this point. So um, very serious problem from that point of view. But, and then also this, this opened the door for Congress to try to pass, although fortunately this doesn't seem to be getting sufficient numbers, but pass new laws to enable the federal agencies to go even further in, in suppressing political activity. But of course, the, the real key thing here was when Trump himself eventually came out and denounced them and said they should all be arrested. So the total lack of any kind of leadership, which just leads to just total disarray on the far right. Yeah, the, the plurality, or I mean, I think absolute majority of the far right, but all their faith in Donald Trump, the guy turned out to be you know, absolutely not up to the task that they'd given him. And and I mean, he never never signed up for it, to be fair. Like, you know, this goes back to this Q thing. Like all these fantasies were invested in Trump, all these fascist fantasies about like Trump from both the right and the left. 
you know, all these people say Trump is like a strong man, fascist, where, when in fact he's just this, this preening, self-regarding man who just, who just liked adulation. So, yeah, he liked it when people rallied and, and, and shouted his name and stuff. I mean, the guy is basically apolitical. He has no political mm. agenda. He's, he's not really interested in power, actually. Mm. They backed the wrong horse in the most monumental way. I was saying that we were talking about the different kinds of disappointment because on the one hand, we've got, I, I sort of ref, referred to the disappointment on behalf of the sort of mainstream liberal left in America. Maybe I'm imagining this, perhaps, perhaps I am, but it, there's a, there was a, a certain disappointment in the fact that things went so smoothly because it sort of essentially disenchanted the myth that there was a, going to be a final push from Trump supporters. Whereas, of course, that, what, ended, what ended up happening is that it, it sort of died with a whimper, not even a whimper. And I think now, although, as you say, the right and Trump supporters are now facing a, a real void and probably the most severe one in terms of where to from now, and not only in terms of you know practical politics, but also just in their kind of matrixes of symbols that they've they've operated under for the last four or five years. Yeah, and it was it was born of absolute desperation on the the far right because. But also, I think one thing it's worth saying is that you know that original QAnon idea, which is that Trump was going to drain the swamp, is a perfectly justified desire. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be highly, highly desirable. I mean, I was remarking to you, when there were Q guys pre-inauguration saying that uh, the National Guard are in DC not to quell unrest, but they're there to arrest Congress. They're there to do the final crackdown. Like, I mean, the reason this is unappealing to people as a vision is because they don't want Trump to be the guy in charge. Of course, you know, that's because they think Trump is someone completely different to who the Q people think. Like it would be great if some guy who you know outside of politics who was, was you know had integrity, the kind of person that his backers imagined Trump to be, were to you know eliminate the this kind of corrupt political class, but was never never on the cards to the most extent. But look, this whole this whole attachment to Trump was born of absolute desperation, right? Mm. That that there is you know clinging to. The, the possibility that someone might be able to change something because otherwise nothing's going to change and it won't right but what is so terrifying about the current moment and we said this in advance right this is how we were discussing it even before it happened but the, the inauguration of biden it's a moment where it's just like look nothing can change america is the way it is it's chinatown it's fixed for, from a certain point of view like if you're I mean, the, the only promise they have now is like that everyone's celebrating so wildly. It's like, oh, look, you know, we have women and people of color in the elite now. Mm. You're not going to be excluded from the elite on the basis of being a trans person or, or a woman of color, right? We're going to be an all-inclusive elite. But of course, it still means that the elite excludes 99% of people. It just doesn't yep. do it on a nakedly prejudicial basis. But that is the face of sort of modern liberalism, isn't it? It's the idea that you know this. The, you'll see if the fact that your CEO is, for example, a woman or a person of color, that is the victory, rather than the fact that you know something else. But I think I felt this on, in amongst some of, I mean, people that we both know, Mark. That those people on, I guess, on some form of the left, of the far left, there was a disappointment after Trump lost, as well, uh, and perhaps a similar sense of disappointment, not because Trump 
himself lost, but because of what it represented, namely return to the status quo, the sense that it is indeed fixed and that nothing can change. I mean, I felt the same, despite having nothing to do with UK politics, I felt the same when the Corbyn project kind of collapsed because there was that brief moment in 2017, which to some extent, there was a bit of myth-making there too, but there was a small moment in which we thought, you know, something could happen here. And then that terrible disappointment when you realise that it can't, I think it's really hard to overcome, even if it's imbued with a sort of naive optimism, perhaps. That's right. Corbyn in the UK, Bernie in the US, and Trump in the US. You know, we get the message. Like, democracy, I've said it before and I'll say it again, democracy. <laughs> doesn't work. Simply doesn't work. But it does, it, it genuinely doesn't. Like, Kent Brockman was right. <laughs> and by, by this, I mean, I mean, not just the, which I kind of also agree with, like, okay, like, forget democracy. But, like, it's not a democracy. There's no democracy here. No, that's right. Even when Trump lies, he tells the truth. My favourite line, Chris Cutrone's line describing Trump before his election, 2016. Even when Trump lies, he tells the truth. When Trump says it was a, a rigged election, it doesn't matter whether that was because the number of ballots cast was false because they were shipping fake ballots. And maybe they were. I absolutely refuse to discount the possibility this election was massively rigged. But it doesn't matter because, you know, even if the ballot counting was accurate, they rigged it. Mm. The way the media conspired to cover up Hunter Biden's crimes, Joe Biden's complicity in those crimes, Joe Biden's disgusting history of inappropriate behaviour with young girls in particular, but also more generally women and boys, the total refusal to engage in any form of critical analysis of Joe Biden at any level. This election was fixed. It was fixed by a confluence of extremely powerful forces, the Democratic Party, significant sections of the Republican Party, corporations at large in America, the media, social media, so new and old media. I mean, a a coalition so powerful, you know, despite the fact that they represent a tiny number of people in real terms, but we're also able to carry this huge swathe of like educated middle-class opinion through with them, Mm. essentially through signaling. Yeah. This comes back to your original point, you know, what does, what happens now, now that we have sort of returned to, Regular, and I'm actually I'm a bit uncomfortable using the plural, and I'm also a bit uncomfortable with you know the foreign obsession with with U.S. politics. But I think it is representative of a broader phenomenon. Well, it's fixed here too. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's well, you can you can draw out correlations to other countries. But now that we've returned to regular programming, as it were, in America, now that we've seen that the fix is in, what then happens with the cohort that now see that now see that very clearly, both on the right and the left, and indeed probably elements of the centre who probably allied themselves with elements they weren't super comfortable with. When you see just the total control of capital and its allies, what we're talking about here is the black pill, basically. Mm. On but on politics, right? So basically, the the, the right have had the black pill shoved down their throat. Trump was their white pill and it's gone away. But as far as the left are concerned, like there's doomers like us who are willing to take the black pill now or, or see no choice but to take it on politics. And I'm, I'm specifically, I mean, this is a very tortured metaphor at this point, and I'm speaking in these terms that not everyone will recognise, but like politically black-pilled. Like I, I think I want to advocate that. 
this point. Mm. Like you should take 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 the black pill as far as politics is concerned. There may be better white pills out there, but they're not political. There's a significant section, possibly even the mainstay of the far left, who are still holding out a hope. And I'm talking about the American far left here, really in particular, but I guess the global PMC far left, holding out the idea that, oh, look, we've got the White House now. Okay, Joe Biden is pretty milk toast, but now is the opportunity for us to push. We need to get the Dems, we need to get Trump out, and now we can move, which is what I think is the, the ultimate logic, whether intentional or not, behind like the protest actions yesterday by the left, mm-hmm. who were the only people doing significant protest actions on the day of the inauguration, because the, the rights melted away. Mm. And the left still hope, oh, this is our moment, now's the time to push it, which means they haven't absorbed the rest of Corbyn at all. That if you up the if you up the ante like that, and it's the left of Trump as well. If you decide to push the Democratic Party, because you can do it. Yeah. You know, they did this with Corbyn, they did it with Trump. In both cases, against the wishes of the party, a leader was installed in the Republicans in the US and Labour in the UK, and it's what they tried to do with Bernie, to push a more genuinely left or right-wing leader who was against the general bipartisan consensus. You can get that leader installed, but at the end of the day, you will not be able to get anywhere with that project because they will rally around. And, you know, the centre-left will get freaked out by your far-left-wing leader and they will make common calls with the right. And, you know, and you've seen it with Trump, that the the centrists in the Republican Party will go to the Democrats. Mm. They will go to the other side. So if you if you try and get the Dems in the US to become a genuinely radical socialist party, all that will do is result in the re- Republicans being the vehicle that corporations flock back to. Like it did for years. Now, you've, you've got an incredible moment in America now where because of Trump, and to be honest, I've said this to you, because of like fucking nothing effectively that Trump has done. Like, what did Trump do like that was so bad? Oh, look, hey, hey, there was some like yahoos like walking around the Capitol building. That's enough to freak everyone out. That like tiny things, little perturbance to American life as normal. It's enough to freak out everyone to the point that every corporation, like, you know, enormous numbers of Republicans, even Trump himself is basically willing to jump on the Biden way as the stable alternative. And I think that comes down to, uh, there was some, some deeply interesting aesthetic stuff going down that day on the level of the symbol, I think. One of which was, uh, we talked about this last week, so we won't get into detail, but yeah, just a, a kind of unqualified horror on behalf of, I think, both sides of politics, or at least many, a huge portion of both sides of ordinary people being in the capital, of sort of walking on the... Uh, on the hallowed, hallowed ground. And I think Trump himself felt that. I, I think he himself was kind of cucked by that in the sense that whether you agree with whatever those people were haranguing for, doesn't really matter. The point is that some ordinary people walked into the Capitol and everyone lost their minds. And the fact that that was such a catalyst for the collective freak out of mainstream media, capital, et cetera, suggests... I think ultimately that America has never been a democracy in that regard. They're too horrified and and disgusted, I think, by that prospect. But that's that's right. America has never been a democracy. Let, let's be honest. 
democracies in human history, you've got Athens, then you've got the Paris Commune, and maybe some other like very, very limited shit. But that's basically it. America was never a democracy. I mean, in fact, you've had some really accurate stuff said from the right in recent years. America was never intended as a democracy, it's a republic. And that is correct, right? The model for American democracy was not Athens, it was Rome. Okay? Yep. That's what they wanted. They wanted an efficient, powerful state that protected landowners and their rights uh, in a kind of neo-aristocratic way. That they didn't have the titles, but they very nearly they, they could have. It's it's oligarchical aristocratic, and it always has been. And the rhetoric of democracy has been used. But let's give it its due, right? Because you have all around the world now this thing, universal suffrage. I mean, what does that mean? It's not democracy. It's not Athenian democracy, right? I mean, look, you can say what you want about Athenian democracy. I mean, like, you know, and, and you'd have to. From, from a modern point of view, Athenian democracy is, is disgusting. It's disgusting according to our contemporary norms because actually it excluded not only women but slaves, the majority of people. Yeah. Right? But... If you were a free man in Athens, you didn't just cast, you know, this ballot based on media reporting. You were actually a participant. Mm. You knew everyone else who was involved. You had a genuine stake. You were yourself part of the government. You were directly engaged in the actual praxis. That's it. Yeah. The, the democracy means the people running things. Okay. Yep. That is voting is not democracy. Mm. Right. Voting is having a choice between which plutocrats, oligarchs, aristocrats, whoever, are going to govern you. That's what we have now. And the idea that you have any genuine choice is illusory because it, you can't genuinely choose anyone you want. And I mean, Plato sees this in, when he talks about the oligarchy. In oligarchy. Uh, he would have recognised the contemporary, what we consider contemporary democracies as oligarchies, pure and simple. And you're right, the historical circumstances of the Athenian democracy of course abhorrent, but the actual basis of how it functions. It's not great. Like, let's be... No. I mean, it is, it is and it isn't. Like, there's some extraordinary things about Athenian, Athenian democracy, specifically, or two, really, which were that it produced the greatest culture and actually the greatest fighting force. It ultimately isn't going to stand the test because it's a it's a form of government that works for a limited kind of self-sufficient i mean you do have a kind of athenian empire but it's not something you couldn't run america like an athenian democracy well that's not what i'm suggesting this kind of this criticism is not a criticism in the sense like my, my critique here is not like oh look we need to have a real participatory democracy in america i mean i understand how we can have a participatory democracy in a modern industrialized society you can do it but it involves localizing most decisions. So you'd have to greatly change the way the society is organized such that power is largely kind of farmed out to small communities which can actually democratically control themselves. Which I'm not opposed to by any means. In fact, I mean, Corbyn was pretty much advocating this. I mean, I the last book I wrote advocated this. I mean, we've talked about the, the disappointment or as you refer to it as the political black pill. What follows from that now, do you think? Given, given the different swathes of the, of the population are now experiencing 
this kind of disappointment. I must admit, I actually felt the same after the Australian election last in 2019, which of course is a totally different situation insofar as, you know, Bill Shorten was a total milk toast Labor leader. There was, there was, but the platform of the Labor Party was comparatively interesting, I think, compared to the previous elections. And I felt when, when he, when they lost the election that they were meant to win, I felt a similar sense of despair, despite obviously being highly ambivalent about the Labor Party in almost all regards. It muddies things a bit when I talk about the last Australian election because I feel like there's, it, yeah, there's something very sweet, generous about that experience, right? It, the last, the last Australian election was not like Bill Short was not Corbyn. No, no, absolutely not. But what was so disturbing about the last Australian election is you had a standard tem- technocratic, business as usual political party in Australian democracy, mm. so called, which lost the election because of a polling failure. I mean, that's all that happened. Yeah. Yeah. If the polls had said something different, Shorten would have adjusted the policies until the polls went right. But because yeah. the polls consistently predicted a Labour victory, Labour went to the poll, polls, I mean, the actual polls, the, the election, with a policy platform that seemed tailored to get victory while you know going as left as you could. Right, That's yeah. basically what Labour did. And it was entirely laudable. And I can't remember how I voted, but anyway, I certainly, certainly preference Labour above the Liberals, uh, which is really the material thing to do. Yeah, and, and they lost, and it was it was extremely disappointing for me, not because, and I imagine for you too, James, maybe I'm wrong, I mean, you were a member of the ALP at that point. Which is, is, well, I, I thought about joining around that time. It was disappointing, not because like I had like high lofty hopes like around Corbyn about changing Australian society, but just at a meat and potatoes level, like yeah. it's led, like, you know, the fact I'm living in Canberra now, like, which, yeah. you know, isn't that bad a thing, perhaps, but like, you know, it made immediate differences to my life. Like, yep. it basically, because my wife and I both work in the public sector, it's like our ability to put, you know, well, put food on the table is probably a bit of exaggeration living in a social welfare state as we do. But, you know, our ability to keep our jobs was immediately threatened by that. That's yep. result. And it, same for you, like, your yep. career as a no, post... But, I mean, the, the bottom line in Australia is, since 2013, when... Abbott won the prime ministership when, when the Liberals got back in power. Basically, that has meant that there have been new jo- no new jobs to speak of in Australian academia for the last yeah. almost eight years now. Yeah, uh, it, it, It's just frozen Australian academia yeah. because of funding. And that's wild. There's like a generation of young scholars like yourself who come through who can't get jobs. Mm. And, of course, the, the hiring environment wasn't that great before, but under Labour, there was a little bit of money flowing. Yeah, you, you, you are right to suggest that it's a different, it, that they're not comparable. Um, but I guess what I was addressing, though, was this this podcast. I think you you describe this podcast as an anti-politics podcast. And this seems to be the thing that's come, that you've you've reached, the conclusion you've reached in the last few years, which is to be anti-politics in a particular way. And I suppose that might be unfamiliar to a lot of people, what that actually means. So when confronted with, for example, the complete impossibility of, to use a wanky term, othering the world, to change fundamentally the ways certain basic tenets of, of our society function, what then does one do? Where does, and this comes back to the, the question of, I guess, nihilism is, uh, there's a, because one could have a sort of political nihilism, I suppose. So what does one do when confronted with the dawning realisation that nothing will ever change? 
Yeah, so look, the, the first thing I want to say here, and this is um, rewinding a little bit, and it, not that you've, you've said the opposite of this at all, but it, it's worth remembering, it's something that um, Chapo Trap House uh, are mm -hmm. very good about constantly reminding their listeners that most people don't really give a fuck about politics. They're not invested in politics, they're not, they, they barely pay attention. And in fact, that the people who are really invested in politics like us are weirdos, freaks and weirdos, okay? And from that point of view, most people we could say are, are in political nihilism in a sense, right? So um, what I'm doing now is basically, when I talk about anti-politics, kind of advocating the position that most people have naively as a deliberate mm. position for the point of view of someone who was previously very invested in politics. Mm. And actually my understanding of this term has evolved and I think hardened or is much more maximal, like a much more maximally anti-political thing to be. So the last book I wrote, or rather the last book that I, of mine that was published uh, for Foucault Against Political Theory is explicitly anti-politics. And it comes, you know, it's, it's about Foucault, right? My, my favorite guy. Your boy. He said this incredible phrase at the end of a lecture, we can only draw one conclusion, never do politics. Mm. There's an incredible aside here, which is the English translation. It was mistranslated as never do polemics. Absolutely bonkers. So like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On what grounds? No grounds at all. Like I, I went and listened to the audio recording, which is why available. And he said, uh, politique, he doesn't say polemique, he says, but I take it, it's, it's repression. Like the guy who was translating that couldn't pass this, like never do politics, whoa, you know, a bit edgy. Triggered. There's, I mean, I take it Foucault's meaning of this is that politics is associated with, I mean, much as we talk about the word democracy, we talk about kind of genuine democracy, which is like people genuinely controlling their lives at the point their lives are lived yes. versus this, you know, what is called democracy, you know, the technocratic, bureaucratic, oligarchical version of it. And I think that the word politics is attached to all this shit. Yeah. It's not anti-political in the sense of not being concerned with, I don't know what, with, with making life better or something like that. But actually, I, I, I feel like now, even, even that, like I'm not, I've turned my back mm. even on, on that politics. It's not in the most extreme sense, in the sense that I, I'm, I don't want to completely foreclose the possibility of engaging in community-based organisation around issues we care about or something like that. It's not like I'm absolutely opposed to politics. But the problem that I think is there in both the politics in the traditional sense, but also in this kind of anti-political politics that someone like Foucault represents, right? That I've had as my point of attraction for a long time, right? Because I was obsessed with politics, like, you know, as a kid, you know, I mean, as a teenager, I got completely obsessed with politics and have been really ever since. And, you know, I hoped, I hoped for like a political party to save me. And then I got, you know, increasingly left-wing anarchistic and then, then found Foucault and started looking for kind of political solutions that weren't political, alternative politics. But all of that, I think, ultimately amounts to the idea that one can attain salvation. One can solve all of one's problems through some form of political thinking or acting. And I think the place of politics has to be much more subordinate than that. So I think, I mean, this isn't really being anti-politics, but I think 
so it's being anti-political i think you know it goes back to what i said about the you know hereticalness of what all the trump history engaged in that they, they were substituting politics for religion and that's yeah. inappropriate like that just you mm. should not put that kind of psychic investment into politics yep so the claim is that QAnon in some ways is a kind of pseudo-religious replacement of yeah. the political. And of course, in a, in a very, I mean, it's, it's very much religious. I mean, it's more religious than it is political because QAnon, and one of the like crazy things about QAnon is it didn't require believers to do anything. It yeah, was yeah, all being yeah. done yeah. for you behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a political movement. It was a religious movement. Yep. But it centered around politics, which is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. It, they, mm. they were putting Donald Trump in the place of God, despite at the same time them and Trump all claiming they were Christians. I mean, Trump, to be honest, I don't think Trump is blamable. I'm trying to, I'm still trying to get my head around this, this idea of anti politics. In some ways, what I'm grappling with, which is perhaps, perhaps adjacent to your position, or at least in some ways that, that yeah, it's distinguishing between politics in terms of, you know, the classical definition of the organisation of human beings versus the kind of modern technocratic, bureaucratic world of politics. And turning your back on that can only be a good thing um, and indeed can actually be a political action. I guess it's the nature of how you turn your back on it that is important. And that's something that I'm grappling with at the moment because... I don't know how best to do that. 